Friends, we are indeed in Acts chapter 6, 8, Acts 8. We're in Acts chapter 8, if you want to turn there. And I'm going to start reading in verse 26. Hear now God's word. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here it is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray together. Lord, your hand is everywhere in this passage, everywhere in this world, everywhere in this room. I pray that we would leave today with a bigger, more splendid, glorious vision of who you are and what you can do than the tired, small, worn out one we came with. You can do that. And so we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, in these series of chapters, Acts chapter 8 and 9 and 10, it's this corridor of conversions. We kind of zero in and watch these incredible conversions because up until this point, we had been watching people come to faith in crowds. You know, you had that incredible Pentecost sermon and crowds come to the Lord and then the crowds in the temple come to faith and then crowds in Judea and crowds in Samaria. But up until last chapter, we begin this new focusing in on individuals and last chapter, Simon the magician comes to faith and now we see the story of the Ethiopian eunuch and then next week we get Saul turned Paul and then we're gonna read about Cornelius. We're narrowing in on individuals and their families coming into the kingdom to celebrate what God is doing. So today we're gonna look at the Ethiopian eunuch and like every great story, it's got characters, it's got this providential setting, it's got a plot and it's got a sweet and a beautiful ending that's all being held together in God's hands. And so I just want to walk through that story and see what it means in that day and see what it means for us today. Let's talk about the characters that we meet here. We've got Philip and the Ethiopian. We know that Philip is one of the seven who is one of those proto-deacons that was introduced to us in Acts chapter 6. 
So he and Stephen have been out witnessing. They've been sharing the gospel with a number of people, and here he is in his next venture of doing that. But then in verse 27, we get introduced to the other person, and it says this. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, we never get the name of this man. That's why we keep calling him the Ethiopian or the Ethiopian eunuch. But we actually hear a ton of stuff about this guy. Number one, that he was Ethiopian. And we don't know exactly whether this refers to modern-day Ethiopia or modern-day Sudan, but he was from somewhere south of Egypt, and this was kind of uncharted territory. If any of you have read Homer's Odyssey, Right at the beginning of the Odyssey, he refers to Ethiopia and Ethiopians as the furthermost of men. Like this is the end of the known world as far as the Roman Empire is concerned. We don't know much about it, and it's at the far edges of the earth, and that's where this guy is coming from. Then we hear that he's a minister of finance, which means he's upper class, he's influential, he's wealthy, he's powerful, he's a man of means. We hear that he's a eunuch. And if you don't know what a eunuch is, go ask your mama. But I'll tell you that you can be made a eunuch for the role that you might have. Or Jesus says you can be born a eunuch. Or that word can also just refer to a court official, which makes it really confusing. So we don't know why he's called that, but he is referred to that. And it feels awkward referring to him as the eunuch, but that's what the passage keeps doing. But then lastly, we hear that he went to Jerusalem to worship, and then we learn that he owned a copy of Isaiah's scroll. So this guy is well acquainted with the God of Israel. He knows something about him and has been pursuing him for some time. He knows about this God. He wants to worship this God. He's like Cornelius, who we're going to meet in chapter 10. There's already something that God is doing in his heart and mind, even before Philip meets him. So those are the two characters. Now check out this providential setting. The setting that leads up to this encounter is so absolutely wild. It's like this one in a million encounter. It feels like this crazy, crazy coincidence. I don't know if you guys have experienced coincidences in your life, but those moments where you just can't imagine that a couple of things have aligned themselves and you didn't expect it, and then it just totally surprises you the way that it feels like things have fallen into place. I uh, was listening to a podcast, This American Life. I don't know if any of you have listened to that, but I commend episode number 489, which is dedicated to coincidences, right? So they tell stories of coincidences, and here's a crazy coincidence. I said this in the nine o'clock service. There was a family here. Someone said to them, hey, you should check out the podcast, This American Life, and they scrolled through 500 episodes, and they picked the one on coincidences, and they told me that this morning. I had just referenced that. Isn't that a crazy coincidence? So this stuff happens all the time. Um, When they did this study, they had people like sending in these stories to them and they wanted them to air these stories, but they said, we're serious journalists, we're not doing coincidence stories until they got so many that they said, okay, we'll dedicate a whole episode to it. So they took in 1,300 coincidence stories, they weighed them, they verified them, they tested them, and they learned some pretty significant things. Number one, we experience coincidences typically when we're young. 
like in our teens and our 20s. Lots of coincidences involve grandmothers. Lots of them happen in and around the Netherlands. And a lot of them are related to airplanes and to Craigslist. Okay, that's what science is telling us right now about coincidences. That's what we've learned so far. But there's some crazy stories. There's a couple that meets, they get married, and then they find out later in life that they were both born in the same hospital. I mean, that's wild. And then you have uh, a couple that's dating, and the guy tells his girlfriend on vacation, send me a photo, and she does take a selfie, and in the background, she's never even met her before, is the boyfriend's grandmother, photobombing the picture. I mean, that's pretty crazy. And then there's one that I still don't believe. A guy's doing surveys in the mall, and he's got to take people's phone numbers down and do the survey, and then he gives them a gift. So somebody comes up and gets the gift and tries to, like, make up a phone number. You know, my number is 803-555-126-ish-niner. And the guy says, that's my phone number. I mean, that's crazy. It would be a one in a million chance to align six numbers together. So 10 is just, that's absolutely off the charts. I don't believe that one, but that's crazy. All of that is nothing. That's nothing. Those are gimmicks. Those are party tricks. Those are cool stories to tell. That is nothing compared to the million details that went into this encounter between two men who live a thousand miles away from each other. Ethiopia and Jerusalem. Think of all that has to happen to orchestrate these two men crossing paths on the road to Gaza. I mean, first of all, you have to have the Ethiopian eunuch in the first place. You have to have a man who lives a thousand miles from Jerusalem who has already heard about the one true God of Israel and he's interested in him and he's traveling to worship him and learn more about him. He can't just be anybody because he's got to be a man of means who could make such an enormous journey to get to that city to be able to worship him. That's happening with the eunuch, but then on the other side, you've got Philip, who's a Hellenist, who's been converted. He's risen in leadership among the church, and he's been chosen and commissioned to preach the gospel, and he's had opportunity to do that. And so now you have these two men who exist, but then think about this. The eunuch just so happens to make an international trip right at the same time that the gospel is starting to spill outside of Jerusalem? Like if he had made this trip a little bit too soon or a little bit too late, he would have totally missed what God was doing here, but he goes at just the right time. And it just so happens that the eunuch owns a scroll that was very rare and very expensive for people to personally own any part of the Bible. I don't know if he had just bought that in Jerusalem when he was there, But of all places in that scroll, he has opened up to Isaiah chapter 53, which is the clearest connection from the Old Testament to get a person to Jesus, and that's the passage he just so happens to be reading at that moment, and he's had enough time to read it and struggle with it and have a question about it, so that right when Philip walks up, he is ready to open his ears and hear. That's incredible. That is an incredible series of events that bring these two together. It's mind-boggling to think about. But unlike that episode of This American Life, the world that is being portrayed to us here is not one of 
chance encounters and freak coincidences. It's a world that's held in the sovereign hands of the Holy Spirit. Nothing happens without his notice or his control. Verse 26 clearly tells us it was the angel of the Lord that told Philip to head towards the road. And he goes there and it's almost like he's frozen there. So verse 29 says the Holy Spirit gives him an extra push and says, I want you to go and talk to this person. None of this is happening by accident. All of this is carefully planned and orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. That's tremendous. Now, you guys know on Sunday mornings, we're going through the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I mean, that's been exciting for most of you. Um, And we've challenged the church to buy a copy of this book, take it home, read it with your roommate, your coworker, your friend, your family. Uh, Some of us are memorizing it. Some of us are just talking about it. Our family, we read the question on Sunday morning and then Monday dinner is the time we break out the shorter catechism. We read the question. We just talk about the answer together and that's been a very sweet time for the first six weeks until we got to question number seven, which says, what are the decrees of God? And the answer, the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory, he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Now, did anybody spend any time last month trying to explain God's foreordination of all things to an eight-year-old? If you haven't, you don't know the madness of our dinner table because that's a very dense topic And my kids immediately wanted to know, well, what about evil? Well, what about sin? Well, what about bad things that happen to good people? What about hurricanes? And I said, forget this, man. We're going back to the Jesus Storybook Bible. I don't have time for this. This is crazy. God's foreordination of all things. But in all seriousness, if we are believers grounded in this word, we are spending significant dinner, table, time, getting our kids away from the American agnostic junk food that we have somehow by chance been born into this primordial soup and are being raised in this world of mere accidents, meandering through this chaos together. We want to get that off the menu and we want to replace it with a very healthy dose of Colossians chapter 1. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Is that the Jesus you know? Is that the Jesus you serve? It's a small, small thing for the Jesus of Colossians chapter 1 or the Holy Spirit of the book of Acts to put Philip and a eunuch in a chariot bent over their Bibles for the salvation of the nations. That's easy. That's child's play. And it's a small thing for the Jesus of Colossians chapter 1, the Holy Spirit of Acts, to orchestrate the million little details of our own daily lives to use them for his glory. That's easy. 
Christian, as you think about the week ahead of you, as you think about the afternoon ahead of you, do you know it is marked by divine encounters? That's not an extraordinary thing. That's an ordinary thing. If God is holding all of this together, then the person we meet up with this week or the coworker we cross paths with or the downtime we have with our kids or the meeting we've set up, all of that is mysteriously held within the hand of God and there is absolutely no accident. Far from coincidences, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 tells us, tells us about a totally different world for a believer. It says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now we hear that, we know that, we know that once he saved us, he fills us with his spirit, he gives us spiritual gifts, so we know we have the capacity for good works. Like we're armed and ready to do good works, we know we have the potential for good works, but that's not where verse 10 ends, it goes on to say, which he prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Do you realize that every good work you do Every spiritual fruit that you bear has been prepared beforehand by God for you and I to walk in. I guarantee you there's not a single good deed you and I will do this week, a single act of kindness, a single evangelistic moment that you and I will do that God will turn around and say, wow, that's a great idea. I wish I had thought of that. All of this is held in his perfect hands. What sure feels like wandering in the wilderness of the week to us from our vantage point, it's like we're just wandering out here from God's vantage point is carefully laid stepstones of us walking in his will. Our good works are God's prepared paths. Now the comfort to us, if this kind of God could be true, if he really could be that sovereign, that powerful, orchestrate those things, the comfort to us is our role as a believer is not to get out there and drum up action for God's kingdom. It's not like his kingdom is waning or his kingdom is losing and it's up to you and I to create some new energy for the kingdom and get out there and do some new stuff to promote God's kingdom. If God really holds all of this in his hands, then you and I are being called to be faithful and to be spirit-filled and to be fruit-bearing in the places, the marriages, the homes, the work, the school, the errands, the routines that God has placed us. He equipped us. He put us there. He laid out all those paths in front of us and we are putting one spirit-filled foot in front of the other to fulfill his will. That's what it looks like to live in God's sovereign kingdom. Now, because he's able to do that, and because that's child's play for him, he's able to lead these two together, and you get this beautiful moment between them. In verse 30, Philip asks the great disciplers question. And that is not just, are you reading your Bible? Did you read your Bible today? He's asking the next layer, do you understand what you are reading? And the eunuch answers with the great disciple response, verse 31, 
How can I unless someone guides me? He's reading Isaiah 53. Philip starts there. He could have started anywhere in the Old Testament. And verse 35 says he tells him the good news about Jesus. Now we say that the mission of this church is to be disciple-making disciples in a church-planting church. And so a lot of weight hangs on what it means to be a disciple and make a disciple. And I can hardly find a simpler definition of disciple-making than this passage right here. To make a disciple is to take a willing person, believer or unbeliever. Discipleship doesn't have to start with faith. It starts before faith. I take an un, a willing unbeliever or I take a willing believer. We prayerfully lean over our Bibles together asking, are you reading and do you understand what you're reading? And together we understand and experience this good news about Jesus. That's it. That's discipleship. We do that on Sunday mornings here in the service. We do that in our small groups. We do that when we meet together one-on-one. The discipleship strategy of the church has not changed in 2,000 years. We are doing today what Philip was doing in his day. And once this foreordained divine encounter speaks this good news of Jesus' irresistible grace, the rest is history. The eunuch leaves rejoicing in his faith. He's converted, he's baptized, he goes away rejoicing. And one of the earliest church fathers tells us that when he left there and took the gospel back to his homeland, he actually became the first missionary to Central Africa. I mean, that's crazy. Now, in our context, we're about to start a brand new work, an evangelistic work in Allen and Benedict's. And it's going to be led by Devin, and he's going to spearhead that. And one of the questions that he hears on campus is, is Christianity a white man's religion? And that's a good question because Christianity has been abused in white spaces. But historically and biblically, the church is going to get blacker before it gets whiter. You've got Middle Easterners sharing with Africans who are taking it deep within Africa. And that's a beautiful display of God's wisdom in his church. But even more than that, this providential, coincidental encounter on the road to Gaza is the first fruits of the nations. God said, I want you to be my witness in Jerusalem, check. And in Judea, check, we've done that. And in Samaria, check, we've done that too. And even to the ends of the earth. They thought that meant Ethiopia. And the eunuch takes it to his homeland. They didn't even know about Central Africa. And already Jesus' name is being proclaimed to the furthest outposts of the known world of that day because God will guide his gospel to the ends of the earth. That's why we're going to pray and then we're going to stand and sing this line. We know the outcome is secure. We know that because it is in sovereign hands who's orchestrating it. We know the outcome is secure and Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. Let's pray together. Jesus, I praise you that there are many among us who are numbered as this inheritance among the nations. And I praise you that you have equipped us You've given us all we need for life and godliness. And then you make this easy. 
You lay out a path before us of the good, hand, good works that you have prepared beforehand. And I pray that we would be a faithful church to walk in them. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.